thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team, today we are joined by Stacey Sims, environmental exercise physiologist, nutrition scientist and expert in hydration, nutrition and sex differences. Really excited to have Stacey here, so let's dive in and learn more from Stacey Sims. Hi and thanks for joining the show today, Stacey. Thanks for having me. I've heard lots of your podcasts of late, so I'm really looking forward to sharing you with my audience here on The Real Food Real. Uh, Because it's your first time on the show, can you just set the scene for us with your background story, whether it's your health and wellness journey or um, to do with your career? Um, so it's kind of a com- combination, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started as a cross-country runner in, in high school and then started getting more and more into endurance sport. And when I got to university um, in ex-phys classes, was always the participant and wanted to know why some of my results weren't the way they supposedly were in a textbook. And I was always told, oh, it's an anomaly. But then I started really inquiring and realizing, but no, it's different between different phases of the menstrual cycle or recovery. And it kind of jump-started my career wanting to know why all this information is out there and they're not really taking women into consideration. Um, And then I progressed as an elite uh, professional athlete on on road cycling and Ironmanning and all those crazy ultra endurance sports and really looking at, at how I can maximize my training and my physiology um, through nutrition and training practices and really paying attention to how my menstrual cycle goes, um, what my teammates needed as well was kind of the same vein. So my academic career and my sporting career kind of uh, were in parallel and it's pretty much so I could answer questions for myself. Yeah. And you often see that, don't you, with someone's personal journey leading or shaping their career? Mm, yeah, for sure. So um, I think one of your famous quotes is, women are not small men. So tell us more about that. <laughs> um, yeah, so almost all my sex difference lectures uh, at Stanford and um, even now out on the circuit, I always started as women are not small men and it resonates a lot with a lot of people. They're like, well, what do you mean? And I say, well, most of the sport and exercise and nutrition, if not all of it, the information that you have has been generalized to women from studies that have been based on 18 to 22 year old college age men. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is um, creating a, a proper scientific study using women is a longer and more difficult process because we have the menstrual cycle. So we have, you know, two weeks of low hormone and two weeks of progressively high hormone, which precedes um, day one or your bleeding. So when you go to do sports science research, either women are included in that low hormone phase where we're most like men or they group us and combine the data. And that's not an appropriate way. Um, for the fact that there's so many different changes in our body from 
cognitive to reaction time and metabolism and um, thermoregulation, sweat rates, salt content, all that kind of stuff that, that estrogen progesterone affect. So when you're thinking about what you know about hyponatremia or what you know about um, the intermittent fasting diet, all of this stuff has come out because of the research done on men and not enough women have been included. So my uh, push with women are not small men is to say, yeah, we are not men. We have this thing called the menstrual cycle. We also have peri and postmenopause, which changes us again. And if you think about it, when we're born, you have, it's a boy, it's a girl, it's XX, it's XY. And there are inherent sex differences from birth, from things like muscle enzymes and muscle contraction, um, from how much fructose a woman can absorb versus a man. Uh, we can absorb 29 grams per 100. Men can absorb 66 grams per 100. Uh, how we come back down to baseline after exercise. It takes us about 90 minutes to come completely back down to baseline where it can take men 2 to 18 hours, depending on what they've done. But we don't hear about this because most of the research, again, has been done on men. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a really important point. So I'm very pleased that you're so passionate about this topic. So let's talk more about the sort of two hormone phases of the menstrual cycle, if if you will, so that we can, I guess, explain to our listeners what's happening in each phase and I guess what the outcome or what needs to be different. So if we could start with um, certainly the low hormone phase where we are, um, I guess, as similar to men as we ever would be. Yeah, I, I always use the 28-day cycle um, textbook, even though we are not all 28-day cycle people. Um, so day one is the first day of bleeding, and that's because progesterone and estrogen have dropped. So we say the low hormone phase is from day one to around day 12 or 13, and then you have an estrogen surge, which is um, ovulation or you know your LH and, and estrogen surge for that ovulation. And then estrogen and progesterone start to rise for the last two weeks with the peak of them, the five to seven days before a woman's period starts. And when we talk about um, you know, premenstrual syndrome or all the effects that um, women feel before their period starts is primarily due to the changes of estrogen and progesterone. So in the low hormone phase, we are more like men in the fact that our core temperature um, sits about the same as what men's do, around 37 degrees C at rest. Um, we can hit intensities. We can uh, avoid fatigue. We get better sleep. Um, but as estrogen progesterone starts to rise, there are, there are subtle changes within the body that affect all sorts of our systems. We have an increase in our core temperature by 0.5 degrees C because progesterone is thermogenic. Um, progesterone also competes with a key receptor site um, called aldo uh, aldosterone, and so we have an increase in total body sodium losses. Estrogen um, and progesterone together make us lose more water out of the blood, so our plasma volume is 8% lower, but that doesn't mean that um, we lose that water in general. It just is held in between the cells in different spaces in the body. So this is why women feel bloated. It's not that they're retaining fluid. It's just that the fluid has been shifted to different places. Um, our plasma osmolality or the amount of solutes that are in our blood sits closer to um, hyponatremia um, than it does in the low hormone phase. So women who are doing endurance exercise or endurance racing are more predisposed to hyponatremia. We have a greater sweat rate. 
our um, our body vasodilates for a longer period of time, trying to get rid of heat. And often if you're a hot environment, that means you're absorbing heat instead of letting it go. And sleep is a huge thing as well. A lot of women will talk about how they have difficulty sleeping the few days before their period comes and they don't know if they're stressed or what's happening. And it's a, a because our internal temperature is higher from that progesterone effect that our body can't actually drop into that lower core temperature phase that we need to get to sleep. We're just on the threshold. So you will have periodic um, episodes of wakefulness and sleep. So your sleep is very interrupted and it's not because of stress per se, it's because of this elevated core temperature. Yeah, fascinating. So let's sort of break down those subtopics. I'll stay on the topic of hydration to start because lots of the differences that you've mentioned are around sodium losses, core temperature, um, plasma volume. So if we look at the menstrual cycle and if we talk about the first two weeks um, in comparison to the second, what what do you think is the best way to, I guess, periodize our intake or our requirements? What should we do over the t- course of 28 days? So I really like to people have people think, um, okay, for the first three weeks, you don't have to change too much, um, except I know a lot of women can, f- quote, feel when they ovulate and the fact that that estrogen surge comes. They have a little bit of brain fogginess and uh, slower reaction time, just really lethargic for a day or so. And so like not going out and hammering yourself um, and then trying to get more fresh fruit and veg for water consumption. Um, and then when we get to the five to seven days before your period start, where we'll really feel those effects of estrogen progesterone. This is where when you're looking at your exercise, um, you don't want to go out and do super high intensity stuff. Um, you don't want to do uh, like try to set PRs or anything like that because we can't hit the intensities and the fact that we can't access carbohydrate very well. No time for <laughs> Yeah, no time trial. Um, But if we're looking from a nutrition standpoint, um, I always say eat low on the food chain, you know, um, as close to the source as possible, um, which is, you know, the US saying of clean eating. But when you get to the high hormone phase, you want to increase your protein consumption, sitting around two to 2.2 grams per kilo of body weight a day. And this is, again, because progesterone is very catabolic. And your body needs more protein for the amino acid consumption to help mitigate central nervous system fatigue, um, to help with cognitive function, and to help with muscle repair because of the progesterone catabolic effects. Um, Adding more salt to your diet during that phase, which is counterintuitive to everything you read in the media where like cut salt, cut caffeine, but it's not a, a factor of cutting salt because your body's excreting so much you need to pull more salt into your diet to mitigate some of that bloating. Um, and then from a thermoreg point of view, if you have cold tart cherry juice uh, about 30 minutes before you go to bed, then you can drop your core temperature down and get into that deep sleep. Cold tart cherry juice, very good. Yeah. And so in terms of the hydration then, um, is it mainly regulating your exercise? Or do you think that it's more important to look at what you're actually putting in? What you're putting in, for sure. Yeah. Um, 
So if you think about the typical sports drink market and they're all carbohydrate, 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 and then a little bit of fluid availability. Mm -hmm. So these are your Gatorades, your Powerades, your typical sports drinks, even if they say they're all pure and natural, they sit around a five to 6% carbohydrate uh, solution. And this is too high to actually pull a lot of fluid in. You want to have about a 3% solution. And the best way to do that from home is in 500 mils of water, one sixteenth of a teaspoon of table salt. So just, just a real small, small pixie dusting and um, a little bit of maple syrup, maybe one teaspoon, because this will give you everything your body needs to pull the fluid in to stay hydrated without extra um, carbohydrate that will cause an effective diuresis. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy to think, or it's not crazy really, but it's quite ironic to think that this 5 to 6% magic solution, osmolality, that we've been brainwashed to believe is, you know, the key to our success is actually doing the exact opposite. Exactly, mm. exactly. And everyone's like, but no, there's all these research studies that say this 5 to 6% allows you to absorb fluid. I'm like, no, that's a secondary factor. And if you go back to the earlier research before there was Gatorade, the conglomerate, even some of the stuff coming out of GSSI would say the greatest plasma volume expansion occurs between a 2 and 4% solution. But yes, there is some expansion with 5 to 6%, but it's delayed. So that means after you've stopped exercising, then some of the carbohydrate and fluid actually comes back into the blood. Mm. Yeah, very different to obviously requirements during exercise. Yes. Um, so let's talk more about carbohydrates. I interrupted you before, but um, in terms of, um, you know, obviously in the, in the first phase of the menstrual cycle, the low hormone phase, we've got, um, you know, a carbohydrate metabolism that's quite similar to men's and our recoveries, you know, a lot more similar. So how does that differ in either the, the last two weeks or the, that five to seven days before menstruation? Um, so the recovery is always different across the phase, and I'll get to that in a second. Mm-hmm. But from a carbohydrate metabolism standpoint, um, estrogen spares um, glycogen. So when you are having an elevation of estrogen, you can't access liver muscle glycogen too well. And so you need to top up a little bit more if you're doing something longer than 90 minutes, not the 90 grams of carbohydrate that's out there. Because again, that was a study done on the equivalent of 13 male elite triathletes. Mm -hmm. So that is not an appropriate amount. So I try to get people to think three to three and a half food calories per gram of kilogram of body weight per day in, I mean, not per day, per hour in that high hormone phase. So, you know, around 120, 160 of mixed macronutrient food. And the reason for that is fat and protein and carbohydrate all help each other to digest and not overload the system. So you'll get a steady state of energy and you'll be able to hit some of those intensities. You're not going to hit them as a PR standpoint because you still have the central nervous system fatigue that is affected by estrogen progesterone crossing the blood brain barrier, but it is going to allow you to have a pretty solid workout. And in the low hormone phase, um, you don't have to worry so much about uh, how much food and stuff you're getting in because your body can really access the carbohydrate and access uh, fat metabolism in a much better stance than you can in the high hormone phase. And when we think about recovery, um, there is this 90-minute to comparison to the 2 to 18 hours I was talking about. Um, it's worse in the high hormone phase and the fact that if you don't get uh, a 
about five to seven grams of leucine or the equivalent of 25 to 30 grams of, of whole protein within 30 minutes, then you're compromising not only your um, carbohydrate um, storage, but also uh, muscle adaptation and repair. Because the key thing for women is because we have this such a short window for recovery, we need to increase the amount of leucine post-exercise to tip over um, from a breakdown standpoint to a reparation standpoint. Mm. And once you get that leucine in, then it kicks over into a reparation standpoint. Um, and progesterone, again, as I said, is very catabolic and it, it increases amino acid utilization and excretion. So this is where leucine, branched chain amino acids, whole protein become very important. Yeah, so that's an interesting topic. So what about the, I guess, the goal of athletes that are working on their fat adaptation that might uh, delay that post-training meal? <clears throat> Yeah. So if you get that, um, you know, that good hit of leucine, either through branched chain amino acids or for whole protein, uh, you're not ingesting a lot of calories. You're losing or you're reducing the amount of carbohydrate that comes in, but you're not compromising recovery. The other aspect of that is that protein that comes in because it switches over to an anabolic instead of a catabolic phase. It also um, allows your body to have that insulin sensitivity that is normally associated with that 45 to an hour window of carbohydrate replacement. It opens it up for another two hours. So the way I have my athletes think about it is you have your really good hit of protein right after exercise, and then you can afford to delay your meal for up to two hours. Mm. So this is a way that you can um, manipulate your body composition and your metabolic efficiency through being smart of how your body uses different macronutrients um, in that acute recovery phase. Yeah, that's a really good tip. So you think something like a branch chain amino acid powder post-training and then, you know, say breakfast or your next meal in a couple of hours later. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Very good. Now, did you have any other comments to make on recovery while we were there? Um. There's one other thing that doesn't have to do with the nutrition standpoint, mm. but there was an article that came out about ice baths, about how ice baths don't work. And it's because they were looking specifically on men. And there's this acute um, response that is different between men and women. Post-exercise, women tend to vasodilate first. So they push all the blood away from um, the central organs and stuff to flush to the limbs. And this is why a lot of women get that orthostatic hypotension, the head swings and need to sit down, low blood pressure, where men vasoconstrict. And so they send the blood centrally. So post-exercise for optimal recovery, you have your branched chain amino acids. And then as a woman, you do the cooling compression. And for men, you delay that by about an hour. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Like the research is sounds like it's just been so black and white when mm -hmm. the, the differences are, you know, so vast. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Now, in terms of um, our athletes that might be um, past menstruation, can you talk about menopause and how that differs? Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a very small amount of information out there for master's athletes mm. um, because they, I mean, I've heard it across the board for the, about the past three or four years when I've been really getting into the menopause research. Um, 
And they're like, well, they're not enough active women to be classified as um, a elite or a serious athlete once menopause starts. And I was like, have you looked at the stats? Because the fastest growing population in athletics is the master's population. Yeah, that's <clears throat> So one of the biggest complaints that um, peri- and postmenopausal women have is putting on this abdominal adiposity, their uh, power dropping off, not being able to tolerate temperatures. And this is all a function of you've had this 20 or 30 years of estrogen, progesterone perturbations, and all of a sudden it drops off. Um, and in that stance, um, we become way more sensitive to carbohydrate. And this is why a lot of women put on the abdominal adiposity is because they don't necessarily think about changing um, carbohydrate timing or intake if they are athletes when it becomes very critical for them to really focus on what kind of carbohydrate am I getting? I need a little bit of quick acting carbohydrate right after exercise to help repair. But for the most part, getting your carbohydrate from um, really good vegetable and fruit sources, and then some of the ancient grains, the spelt, the amaranth, that kind of stuff, and focusing more on protein and a little bit of fat. So I try to go, you know, when you're approaching menopause, the 40-30-30 idea with the emphasis on the protein. And the reason for the emphasis on the protein, again, is the leucine content. So the soy protein, not a good idea. The pea protein, quinoa protein, not a good idea. The leucine content isn't high enough. For example, 50 grams of rice and 45 grams of soy protein uh, have the same leucine availability as only 25 grams of whey. So if you're thinking about volume and calorie metrics, then you know that the leucine content in those two vegan aspects are not good enough for the reparation. The other thing is when we hit menopause, we lose the uh, fast twitch fiber and power from a neuromuscular standpoint. So changing up the training to have some branched chain amino acids before and after, as well as doing more power-based plyometric type training rather than that steady state and long, slow stuff that feels pretty good. Because you want to be able to maintain power, you have to uh, keep shocking the body to get that neuromuscular response. And this is where a lot of people tend to be like, oh, I'm getting old. I can't do power. But you can if you change your training and you get that um, loosing in and around that type of training. Yeah. And then when we get to then we get to the sleep aspect, because estrogen is so critical in helping with melatonin production and then it drops off. You have these perturbations in melatonin, as well as a smaller window for core temperature tolerance. So this is, as I was explaining earlier, how women in the high hormone phase have difficulties with proper sleep because of the small window of core temperature. Menopause, that's across the board. Like you have um, early phase, hot flushes. And this is this, um, you know, reset of the internal temperature in your body is trying to understand, okay, what's happening here? So this is where that cold tart cherry juice with some uh, whey protein before bed is going to maximize your sleep and reparation. Um, and the tart cherry juice is notorious for increasing, notorious in a good way, for increasing your body's own natural production of melatonin. The cold aspect, again, helps drop the core temperature to get into that quality sleep. And then having whey or casein before bed helps titrating amino acids to keep muscle um, reparation going and to slow down the amount of cortisol that's released during sleep. So all of these things help with sleep, reparation, and body composition.
So what do our vegans do? So there are vegan branched chain amino acids, and you can add that to um, pea or quinoa. Um, so you're not overdoing the aspect of the calorie or the actual volume amount. Mm. But again, it's all about getting the leucine, the leucine content up. The fastest uh, population that I have of clients is the vegan female athlete. So we've been doing a lot of work on, okay, if you need some protein when you first get up, what you do, then you can go without the branched chain amino acids and just use the pea or quinoa combination. But before and after training, you need to get that leucine content up. So we've been working a lot with vegan um, branched chain amino acids added to their protein afterwards, and then just using it straight before. Amazing. So does the the four guidelines apply to everybody? The what guidelines? So the leucine before training apply to everybody or just menopause? Um, If you're doing hard training uh, in the high hormone phase, Mm -hmm. it is very advantageous to take the branched-chain amino acids before and after, but in menopause across the board. Um, Because when you're exercising, this is when you're stressing your body the most and you want to support that stress to reduce the amount of cortisol that's produced. Um, It's important in menopause across the board because the more uh, cortisol that is produced, the less reparation you have, as well as a greater stimulus for abdominal adiposity. In lean, normal weight, um, premenopausal women who are doing a lot of hard training, and they start to have a little bit of menstrual dysfunction. It primarily is due to this rise in cortisol and a higher baseline of cortisol. Because in order to keep cortisol going, your body, quote, steals estrogen, progesterone, testosterone to keep this cortisol production. So then it causes a little bit of menstrual dysfunction. So this is why when you get into that high hormone phase as a premenopausal woman, making sure you keep that protein and that uh, and or branched chain amino acid content high, it's going to help mitigate some of that cortisol response because it is elevated and there is a phase difference in stress response with a greater cortisol release in the high hormone phase. So to avoid having a menstrual dysfunction, really focusing on getting those branched chain amino acids in. Absolutely. And another reason why doing high intensity at this time is not a good idea, just more stress on top of everything else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So obviously um, with your athletes, you're periodizing their training across a menstrual cycle. Um, what have been some of the benefits that you've experienced, whether whether it's with yourself or your athletes, um, in tweaking a, a training program around the hormones? Um, well, I am not so much the athlete myself anymore. Okay. <laughs> I'm just recreationally fit because uh, I have a small toddler who takes more of my time than anything else. Um, but the learning process over 20 years has been able me enabled me to be able to work with coaches and some of my own athletes to tweak their training. And there's been monumental gains where women have been fighting across the board going, I, I just... It, I'm not fit enough when they're trying to do high intensity in those five to seven days before the period starts. Something's wrong with my fitness. I'm not recovering well because I can't sleep. Um, I'm gaining weight because I'm bloated. You know, there's all these things that women think about when they don't know what's going on with their physiology. So giving them the key to say, hey, this is what's happening with your physiology. And these five to seven days before your period starts, estrogen and progesterone cross the blood brain barrier makes you more tired. You lose your mojo. You also have this fluid shift. So you are retaining more fluid 
in and around the cells in different compartments. So you feel bloated, but you also have less water in the blood. So you can't thermoregulate that well. So you're going to feel hotter on a hot day. You're going to have less tolerance for it. You also are probably craving salty foods because your body's kicking on extra salt. So let's look and see what your training is. Let's try to get this high intensity, um, those PRs and all that really good quality work in those first three weeks, a little bit of steady state, and then look at more recovery during those about five days before your period starts. And then women either have a really good day the day before, the day of, or the day after their period starts, and then some others don't feel well at all. So you get to know your athlete and say, okay, well, your period is going to start. You're going to have heavy bleeding and cramping. So let's start doing some white willow bark and some magnesium to help mitigate those cramping aspects. And let's just have a really nice take care of yourself that day when you feel the worst. And then you can hit it again when you start feeling better. Yeah, it makes so much sense. And I think absolutely a fantastic message. And, you know, any of the women listening um, can certainly think about their own training program and what tweaks they can make. Um, what's been your experience with coaches though? Like it's, it mustn't be easy to communicate this message in all instances. No, it's not. Um, but most of the time the coaches come to me because they've seen me present at a summit or they have an athlete who, um, knows me or knows of me. And so when they see me present somewhere, I always start with the women are not small men. We have periods, blah, blah, blah. And I make everyone in the audience turn and say the word period to each other. (laughs) (laughs) And most of the time the male coaches turn bright red and can't say it. And I'm like, if you can't even say it to the person you're sitting next to, then how can you have this conversation with your athlete where it's such a critical factor to her training and performance? So that kind of tunes them in and then they listen and they realize, oh, I want to maximize my toolbox for my female athlete. And then I get a lot of buy-in. And then when an athlete herself is having difficulties, especially with her period, and she comes to talk to me and then puts me in contact with her coach, I'll be like, hey, this is what's happening. And this is how I think um, you and I can work together to help this athlete. Um, And it's growing in the fact that the message is really getting out there. Um, I'm hoping I'm not the only one who's out there pushing this message. And like I look at some of the teams that I work with in the States and when they started really um, working with their athletes in and around the menstrual cycle, they started seeing these monumental gains across the months. And it's every time you get a, a gain in fitness and mentality, it leads on to the next training session. So it's a positive reinforcement. So over the time of four to six months, you get this massive increase. And this is what people are really looking for. Not the day-to-day stuff, but how does each day impact the next day so that I can get these gains in a month, two months, three months? Yeah, absolutely. Accumulative. And I also think, um, you know, I guess it's, looking at your training program longer term and realizing that it's okay to have these fluctuations, which is an important part of the education rather than pushing shit uphill, so to speak. Yes, exactly. And there's such an emphasis on, you know, what you did on this particular day. Did you hit all your training metrics on this particular day? And, and I know from, um, you know, working with female athletes and coaches and being in the, qualitative and quantitative space that women take it more to heart so much more than men. And I think a lot of it has to do with the cultural aspects of 
us being in such a male-dominated world and the fact that sport is always male-dominated with a lot of male coaches. Medicine is male-dominated with most of the research being done on men. And so when we start to falter and say, oh, you know, I didn't have a great day, you self-doubt. And so you don't really report it to your coach. And you're always focusing on the bad day instead of the cumulative gains. But then if you focus on, okay, why did I have that bad day? Did I have a bad sleep? Did I have, um, you know, was I ovulating or is it a few days before my period starts? And you make these notes in your training program that you can go and reflect and be like, oh, okay, that day I wasn't spot on because of this. But then look at these these days, these cumulative effects. So it's pulling back and seeing the big picture, which is really difficult. Absolutely. But I think a smart athlete needs to learn that skill because there it's the art mm. again next to the science as always where there's, you know, there's going to be a reason and it's really important to have a look at how your body performs across a month because you can continue to tweak things once you know your response. Exactly. Exactly. And I don't think that that's taught very well, especially to the younger athletes coming up. Um, and so I do think that's a very important message to get across to coaches and athletes both male and female. I mean, because young men are kind of in the same boat where their bodies are still learning responses and seeing what kind of training load they have. And they can beat themselves up a bit too. And not sitting back and seeing the big picture can be detrimental to so many athletes. Yeah, I totally agree. So you've written a book. Tell us more about that. Huh, my book. Um, so oh, two and a bit years ago, uh, one of my good friends, Celine Yeager, she's a, a very well-spoken and well-renowned um, fitness journalist in the States for Bicycling, Women's Health magazines, all this kind of stuff. And she came to one of my talks where I say, you know, turn and say the word period like I discussed. Um, and then she was in on some of the camps that I was doing and really, really felt the difference and saw the difference and saw the need for this information to be out there. So she called me up on Skype at one Christmas and it's like, you know what? We need to get all this women are not small men science stuff into a layperson book. And I was like, I'm a scientist and I have a hard enough time giving presentations without using too many big sciencey words. And she's like, don't worry about it. So she pitched Rodell and had this great idea and they picked us up. So we wrote the book and she translated all my science speaky geekiness into a really good layperson um, chapter to chapter. And it's called Roar. So it's everything that I've been talking about um, from what we need when we're premenopausal, when we're pregnant, post-pregnancy, uh, postmenopausal, perimenopausal, how we're different from men, what kind of nutritional treats, tweaks we need to do, looking at um, are we endomorphic, mesomorphic, or um, ectomorphic, and how we can maximize our food and training to work with our body instead of against it. And then there's a couple of chapters in there about, you know, what to do when you go to heat or to altitude or how to even take some of the tools that are out there, like um, pee sticks and heart rate monitors and um, like the level hydration monitor and core temperature things, all these little objective tools that you can do to really, quote, biohack and learn your body a bit more without someone telling you and getting this objective data. Yeah, I was just about to say that exact word. It's all about biohacking to achieve optimum athletic performance, which I just love. So yeah, it's an awesome resource. So I'll um, put a couple of links in the show notes to where our listeners can get their hands on Roar. Did you have Thank anything you. else that you wanted to add today? 
Um, no, because if I did, then we'd be on for hours and hours. I know. I thought it would be a great start anyway to cover the key points, which we have done. So I totally agree. I think it's given a lot of people food for thought, so to speak, and we'll direct them to your book to, to find some more. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Stacey. It was lovely to chat with you. And yeah, thanks for having to, me. You're very welcome. We hope to have you back on again very soon. Great. Thanks. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.